Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is our fourth episode and today we are going to be talking about a goofy movie from 1995. As always, I am one of your co-hosts, I am Zachary Ortz, and I am joined by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey Matt, how's it going? It's going pretty good, how about you? Good, Uh, my wife is out of town right now, so the entire apartment is open so if there's a little click 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 that's uh just my dog walking around trying to figure out why i'm acting like a mad person talking to myself uh yeah that sounds that sounds wonderful it sounds uh, adorable yeah it's pretty nice normally i have to lock her out of the room when we're recording the podcast but now yeah, it's a... she can go wherever she wants uh, you know, it's it's tri- for the folks listening at home. You know, it's always tricky trying to figure out exactly how to manage uh, the sound quality and stuff. But uh, very exciting. Um, luckily, we've got a, a great episode uh, planned today. Hopefully, it'll be great. Yeah, I'm excited about about this one. Um, oh, it looks like did you have something you wanted to talk about before we get into personal history with the movie? Yeah, I had a confession to make. Um, oh, so yeah, it's a. So uh, you've probably heard of um, what's called a uh, a confidence scam at some point in your life before, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like a con artist. Yeah. Um, I, I I have to inform you that you've been the victim of a long con, Zach. Oh no. Um, yeah. So you know, all this time that we've been planning to do this podcast, the entire thing was it's all been a ruse in order to force you to watch this movie, a goofy movie, the whole thing. Do we get to keep doing the podcast after this? I guess so. I'm, we're committed already. But All I just right, wanted you to know, this is this has been my plan the whole time. Sinister plan has been in motion. Uh, and it's, it's finally been, come to fruition. It's been a good couple of weeks for you. Because you got me to move Princess Bride out of whatever my bottom like 50 movies. And you got me to watch a Goofy movie. So. Yeah, exactly. So uh, all, all my plans are, are, are working. Uh, wheels within wheels. Yeah, so I guess that brings us straight into our personal history with the movie. Obviously, as I said at the end of last week's episode, I watched this for the first time yesterday morning. So I had never seen it. I my Really, my only acquaintance with it was having you as a friend and knowing you love it so much and having you send me the, I believe it's the opening number every year when school's out on the last day of school. Yes, exactly. Um, it's a, and I have seen this movie, I don't even know how many times. I watch it um, every year, the last day of school is my tradition. Um, mm-hmm. I watch this one. Um, and then, I don't know, it's a, like in a typical year, I will watch it um, two or three times just because the music like gets into my head. Uh, yeah. And then I'll go back and watch it. So I, I think I've seen this over a hundred times. Um, and... It might be it might be more than that. Cool. Yeah, I'm excited to see. And we definitely I know I say it at the end of each podcast, but definitely we're trying to figure out like what sort of formula works best for the show, whether it's uh, movies that we've both seen a lot or um, in this case, a movie that Matt's seen a lot and a movie that I haven't seen. So definitely drop us a line and let us know which ways tend to work better, which uh ways don't and then next week we'll um 
do a movie that neither one of us have, has seen. So that'll hopefully we can get our wits about us to to talk about that one. It'll be tricky. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I had to go back and rewatch a couple of the scenes from just to make sure that I remembered, which I hadn't really thought about because it was not something I had to do with any of the previous mm. movies, really. Uh, Princess Bride helped because I knew the story, even though right. I, uh, I guess, hadn't fully seen the movie. But anyway, so this movie came out in 1995, in April of 1995. So we're about seven months prior to when Toy Story came out. And for Disney... We are right between Lion King and Pocahontas. Uh, this is a different studio. This is the Disney Toon Studios, which is their... Um, you had said they did a lot of the cartoons, right? Yeah, they do a lot of the cartoons and a lot of the um, direct-to-video sequels. And so the way that Disney kind of treats it is sort of like a feeder team. Um, for the sports analogy, uh, analogy where um, they take the, the animators and they'll put them in work and kind of build up their skills in that studio and then move them over into the mainline Disney animation studio. Yeah, so this was, this was just the second film from this studio. And the one of the nice things, because we already did a movie from 1995 this season, we're not going to go back and rehash everything that we talked about from 1995 in our first episode. Mm -hmm. So if you're really feeling lost at sea and you need, you need to set the time period, uh, we'll still be here if you pause the show and go listen to the beginning of the Toy Story episode again. But I think there was some stuff that you wanted to talk about to just set us in this time period that fits a little more specifically for this movie. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that we wanted to talk about and point out from this film um, is it, it's a film that ha- has a lot of black coding, so a lot of um, character designs and story elements that are intended to represent black people, especially in the United States of America. Um, and uh, it's also a film that has become kind of a cult classic among um, among millennials in general, but black millennials in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a film that's uh, made primarily by white folks, though there are um, there were a lot of uh, black animators that were involved, and uh, they have you know this music that involves Tevin Campbell and whatnot that we'll get to. Uh, but because of that, I wanted to look a little bit about uh, the history that's um, in particular affecting black folks at the time period. Um, and so this is um, four years after. Um, the uh, the events with Rodney King um, three years after the riots um, in response to the to that and then two years after the and give us just a quick rundown on what the events with Rodney King are for uh, in case we have some really young listeners or maybe some people who just forgot yeah so Rodney King. Um, there were some big riots that came after this. He was um, a, a victim of police brutality, a black man that was uh, beaten by LAPD officers uh, during an arrest. Um, and 
the there was uh, footage of this that was filmed from a nearby balcony, and so this was seen on uh, on the news. He was uh, unarmed, taken to the ground, and then um, uh, uh, beaten severely um, uh, during this event. And so afterwards, there was. Uh, there were riots in response to there was not much um, accountability for the <laughs> officers that were involved with this the, which is not a surprising Shocking, thing yeah um, and so uh, because of that there were uh, there were riots in um, you know all over the place but particularly in California um, in, uh, in response to this uh, in response to this event um, and the riots were um, a pretty big deal. Um, there was, oh, I can't remember how many people uh, died during the riots and all the things that happened, but there was, uh, it was a very big civil disturbance um, and it had a huge impact on the culture at the time period. I vaguely remember these. Uh, I was living in Alabama at the time period when this happened, so it was on the news. Um, and I remember seeing the news reports of the Rodney King riots. Um, there were 63 people that were killed during this, um, and uh, 12,000 people were arrested uh, oh in God. the... <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it was massive. Um, and it's hard to explain like how big it was. And you were probably real small when that happened uh, in 92. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, so, I was younger. Yeah. Yeah. Four. So, and it just had such a big effect on the consciousness, um, sort of similar to the way that um, the George Floyd murder has had a big impact on public consciousness now. Um, and all these things are obviously tied together. It's not like these are separate events. They're all part of the same issue. And the trauma uh, has continued building uh, from these things, and they're connected together. Um at the same time that this uh, that these were going on, um, and there was this huge backlash in the popular American culture against black people, and particularly um, um, like black young men in the in the in the time period, um, and you you just saw in so many different places. You know, this is where you have um, the ideas of like. Um, you know, that get spread around things like super predators and things like that. Um, these false conceptions of uh, black young men, especially in urban neighborhoods, um, and this kind of demon demonization of this group of people. Um, and then, but at the same time, there's this cognitive dissonance because um, they are also the driving forces in um a lot of the popular culture at the time period so i was mm -hmm. looking for example at the the top music from from this time period and you go within you know four or five years of when a goofy movie is made and look at the top 10 songs from the the uh the of the year and in just about all of them nine out of ten of those top performers are all black people that are uh performing in all kinds of different genres as well um and you see this in a lot of the movies. A different world had just ended, like a year before this, maybe two years before that. This, um, which was just a beloved uh, TV show among uh, black folks at the time period, and so this film really 
hit that demographic uh, in a particular way. And I think it was, we'll, we'll get into the discussion of this, but I think the choices that they made in making the film were deliberately targeting that dem, dem, demographic to tr- as the audience for this film. Yeah, and you compare, I think it, the, I didn't notice when I was watching the movie until you told me afterwards, but once you clue into it, I think it's pretty stark how, um, just the choice of music, you know, they could have picked any, any number of pop songs or pop groups to sound like, but, um, instead they got Tevin Campbell. So I guess why don't we segue into our personnel section here? We got, what do we have? Three people that we wanted to talk about? Yes. Three and a half. Yeah. Three and a half people. Yeah. So, uh, the first person that uh, I wanted to talk about was Kevin Lima, the director. Um, it's a, you know, Kevin, Kevin Lima, I, uh, as we were putting together this episode, I've been, you know, um, following around on social media and seeing Kevin Lima and he just loves this film. Um, and he has a lot of really good interviews out there. He's a, he's a really good interview. Um, he seems like really good people. Um, and this was his first like major directing gig that he was able to get. Um, and he had wanted to direct for a long time. Um, and you know, he kept uh, putting his name in for contention to, to direct uh, and Disney kept saying, no, we've got everything planned out for, like, the next 12 years. Um, you know, you're going to have to hop in line. Who knows if this will ever happen? And so he ended up leaving the studio uh, because he wanted to be able to direct. And then as he was going around trying to direct things, uh, this movie came up and they were looking for a director. And he's like, well, I'll come back and do this film. Um, and so oh, that cool. is, yeah, so that is how he got involved with, with directing this film. Uh, and it was tricky because this one went through a difficult development process. Uh, and Kevin Lehman talks about uh, some of this. The, the The film got an okay budget, you know, about what a film like this was supposed to get a little bit on the low side um, and for them to make the film. But it was enough to get the job done. Um, but then it received just an abysmal marketing budget afterwards. Uh, and, you know, Kevin Lima, in all the podcasts where he talks about it, and all the interviews where he talks about it, he's he's real nice about it. But um, it does seem like um, Disney was kind of, uh, did not want to promote this movie uh, sort of at all. Um, and um, this also, you know, was true in things that they've done with the parks and uh, events afterwards. This movie has always kind of been pushed to the side. Uh, and not really acknowledged until the last, like, five or six years, to be honest, uh, where Disney has really taken it uh, and started to realize how popular it is with uh, with millennials, um, and especially black millennials. And so yeah, I think once they... millennials had a uh, buying power, then... <laughs> <laughs> then all of a sudden they're like, oh, people like this one. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, this can get us some money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, Kevin Lima also directed Tarzan, and Enchanted. Um, and so he went on to direct some... I love those films. I don't know if you have much experience with Tarzan and Enchanted. Uh, Enchanted I saw in theaters and adored. Tarzan I have not seen since it was in theaters and uh, liked it fine, but I have no deep thoughts about a movie that I saw when I was 
Probably a yeah, young of course. Teen. Yeah, of course. Uh, so you know he 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 has a few other movies um, under his belt. So you know he's a veteran, but um, his his filmography isn't you know as extensive as maybe some other directors are. But the quality, you know, he has a real high hit rate rate uh, with his films, and they're just a, a lot of just really really good films. Um, and I think the direction really comes through on these films as well. So. Um, I think it's it's really good, and it seems clear that uh, as Kevin Lima was putting together this story and working on this story, um, you know that he he just he hit on some really good stuff, and he was and he understood the audience that he was trying to build this for, um, mm-hmm. and he made an incredible film considering the resources that he had available in order to do it. Yeah, and you mentioned the resources. So the um, at least what I could gather the story there is this was greenlit by Katzenberg, who, while the movie was in the process of getting made, while it was getting developed, he got fired as CEO of Disney. And so it was one of those things where, like, the project's already in development, so we're going to release it. But that doesn't mean that we have to sink any more money into it past that. Yeah, exactly, and it kind of got parceled out, um, the work on it, between the different studios. So some of the animation was apparently done by, like, main Disney studio, and then, Mm -hmm. um, but it was parceled out between different places, including, I think, over in, uh, in France. I can't remember all the details of this, but uh, there's a, just a lot of work that was going on, uh, in different places, and it seems like it was just difficult to make this all come together, uh, because of those barriers uh that were put into place yeah interesting i um i'd be interested to know because i feel like there was every so often that i would notice the animation and be it's like oh they clearly spent their animation budget on the on the dance sequences or on some of the action sequences which we'll get into and talk a little bit about but i did it was pretty noticeable to me that this movie there's nothing in it that's embarrassing there's nothing that struck me as oh that looks bad but it is not if i was just watching clips of the animation i would not have placed this right after lion king in terms yeah exactly of yeah, it just looks One, a little... The Lion King, I think Lion King's budget, uh, I, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it's somewhere in the range of, like, $80 million. Um, and so, you know, it's it's you're going to have a noticeable difference with those things, but I do think that there are a lot of sequences in this that just have um, just some phenomenal, uh, phenomenal animation. Like you said, the dance sequences... Uh, the a lot of the musical numbers just kind of work out really well, um, and I don't know. I, I think that considering what they have, they do so many really clever things. Uh, but like you said, it it it's it uh, it's not going to come in at the same caliber as something like The Lion King, which is you know still holds up as one of the uh, most incredible films from an animation standpoint of all time. Yeah. Uh, so that's Kevin Lima. Let's talk a little bit about the music. So as we mentioned, Tevin Campbell wrote the songs for the songs for the movie. I think he did all of them, right? Including um, the non-pop ones, or did he just do the pop ones? 
I, I th- I'm not sure how many of the songs Kevin, Th- Kevin Campbell did. I think he's just uh, primarily the pop songs uh, stand out and eye to eye. Um, so, but he's also, um, you know, Kevin Campbell is, those songs are so central to the film um, that, you know, Powerline the character and uh, Tevin Campbell's performance of Powerline the character is such an iconic one and it's a big part of what makes this movie uh, a cult classic among uh, among millennials as well and black millennials in particular um, and Tevin Campbell just I mean the music really is it's some of the those two songs are some of the best like made for movie pop songs that mm-hmm. I can remember from any movie yeah and I think um, I don't know how his working relationship with the movie was but it feels like, to me, he really rose to the occasion. I wasn't familiar with his movie, with his music before the last couple of days, but I did go back and listen to his first couple albums before the podcast, and they're good albums. Um, there's nothing uh, horrific about them or anything. I enjoyed listening to them. But I don't think there was anything on those albums that I thought was as good as the songs he wrote for this movie. And maybe if I spent a little more time with them, I'd feel differently. But at least that was my initial impression. Yeah, I, I generally agree. I've listened to a little bit more Tevin Campbell than you have. Um, and these these songs really stand out to me. And Tevin Campbell is just a fascinating figure as well because he was real young when this came out. I can't remember um, how old he was, but um, he, he was... He was pretty young. Uh, Tevin Campbell came onto the music scene uh, as, a, as a teenager. Um, yeah, and, he was 19 when this came out, I think. Yeah, that's so young. Um, and they had originally planned for the character of Powerline to be done by Bobby Brown, but then there was uh, some issues that went on um, with that, and he was unable to to do the, the work for this, and so they brought in Tevin Campbell, and he was... At the time period, he was a real rising star um, in in R and B and in um, and he just you know people, he was just on this trajectory as like the next big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of comparisons to uh, Michael Jackson and Prince, and you can see that in the development of the character Bowerline as well. To to me, the Michael Jackson and Prince influences just stand out really really clearly uh, from the character. Um, and you know, then Tevin Campbell's career hits this part point where it really stalls. Um, and I wanted to bring up this part because a big reason why Tevin Campbell's career, uh, stalls is because there became this public perception, uh, that he was queer, um, either gay or bisexual. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Tevin Campbell hasn't like come out and said any of those things. He's, uh, repeatedly said that his sexuality is not anybody else's business. So this is not a speculation on what his sexuality is or is not um, uh, in any way. But the perception that the public had of him was uh, um, really changed uh, his relationship with the music industry. Uh, and uh, his career really slowed down when this perception came out. So some of the things is, you know, in an interview, uh, they asked him if he was gay. He said... That, or if he was bisexual, if he was gay or bisexual, uh, his responses, he said that, you know, that he is the kind of person that will try anything. He called himself a trisexual. 
Um, <laughs> so, which, um, I, uh, you know, I love it. I think that's great. Um, and, uh, but again, he's, he's never, uh, come out as LGBT, but you know, these, these kind of interviews, uh, and then there was another time where he was arrested for soliciting an undercover pol- police officer, um, and at, in a bathroom stall, it seems like some kind of, um, entrapment kind of thing that was going on there. And because of this, that just, his career kind of, um, the music industry didn't want to have anything to do with him. And he's still making music. He's still, you know, he's another person that if you go follow him on social media, he is a real good follow. He's got a lot of, uh, you know, he's just good people. Um, but it's interesting that the, that the music industry really tried to shut down his career. Uh, he's still going strong, still making music, still doing different things. Um, but you know, they've tried real hard to, to just completely shut him out of stuff. Well, and the pinnacle of his career getting mentioned on episode four of stream it. Exactly. Yeah. Something to be proud of there. Yeah. Uh, and so the rest of the music for the film, well, I guess not the rest of it, but the, um, underscoring was, is credited to Carter Burwell. Um, he's a film composer. This was his 23rd movie. So, solid veteran uh mm-hmm. he, he he's still working he's working on morning show right now he just did the steve carell space what is it space force i think it was called yes the those on netflix and the it looks like he wrote all of the themes for this and then disney decided they wanted it to be orchestrated differently than how he had it and so after he had finished all his work then Don Davis came in to rework it and reorchestrate everything. Yeah, that is that is what appears to have happened. You know, it's hard to figure out exactly what goes on in these things, but that's what we could gather from our research. So, yeah, hey Carter Don, if you want to come on and tell us the, the true <laughs> the story. story of how the Goofy movie score got made, spill the details. Yeah, yeah. So. Twitter handles in the show notes. So, <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Uh, Great. And then our last piece of personnel here, very important. There's a retcon to the stream at continuity. I guess after Vizzini dies, he doesn't become reincarnated as a dinosaur. Instead, he gets reincarnated as the principal in a goofy Principal Mazer. Principal Mazer. Wallace Shawn showing up again, doing, doing the good work. And then I think one can only assume he gets punished for being unduly harsh on on the kids and then gets a severe confidence complex and trapped in a dinosaur's body. This this makes sense, yes. The, the timeline checks. I have to say, Wallace Shawn has... Uh, this is like, you know, we're turning into the Wallace Shawn pod- podcast. Yeah. Um, but... Um, this the delivery of his line when they're when he's at the assembly and he says what about science slumber parties and just (laughs) that is one of my favorite lines of all time in any movie and he delivers it so well and then you know the lights go off and it's just uh you know wallace sean he's iconic yep and the casting's perfect. I think there's some selection bias here. I mean, I think Wallace Shawn worked a lot with Disney, and so as long as we're on Disney Plus, 
he's probably going to keep showing up. But I think that is the case, yes. So All right, so let's... Oh, before we move into the scenes that we wanted to talk about, how did this movie hit you this time? I, I don't know if there's any room for it to change, but was there anything that surprised you? Anything you felt differently about? Um... I'm trying to think if there's, you know, there's not a lot that really changed. Again, I've seen this so many times. Um, and But it just, you know, the music, I was paying closer attention to the music this time. Because I mm-hmm. knew that you were going to be watching it. And I know how, you know, I know your relationship with music. Um, and so I was paying closer attention to the, to the non-power line music uh music numbers which i thought there were some really good ones uh in in those songs as well uh really like those um and then just you know uh goofy and sam or uh, goofy and max's relationship um you know i just really like it and it's uh this movie really takes this relationship of a father and son um and it goes on this big journey and my own relationship with my dad has been, you know, uh, through a very, uh, through a lot, especially in the last few years. And so mm-hmm. as I watch it in the last few years, um, that always hits me a little bit differently and a little right. bit, a little bit more powerfully every time that I watch it. Like, th- I think this might be, uh, might have been my favorite watch of the film. Um, and I've seen it so many times, but, uh, yeah, I love it. Just keeps going up. It does. Um, I might have to move it up my list. Do you know where it is now? Uh, I'm not sure, but it's it's pretty high okay. already. So, uh, the yeah. So I I liked it. I would not say I loved it. I don't really know what I was expecting. I had um, some fear about the father son relationship that I just didn't, I, w- I was like a little concerned about where it was going to end up. And so I was scared about mm-hmm. that. But then I also was in my head because I knew you liked it so much. So I figured it probably wasn't going to end up somewhere I was unhappy with. So I would say like I was at a solid like C plus or B minus after I watched the film. But then as I was getting ready to prepare for the podcast and I was thinking about it more and I talked with you about it and when I went back and rewatched the scenes especially the scene at the end I was like oh okay yeah I guess I I guess I get it now like rewatching the power line sequence at the end which I think we're going to talk about as one of our scenes it was just like oh this is pretty great <laughs> it's pretty awesome yeah, it's a. I mean, those things are so good, and it's it's real hard to figure out with this one because uh, this film is one that the people that watched it have watched it so many times, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's it's so hard to figure out. It's not one that you can really judge on an objective measure, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of course. So, uh, but yeah, woof. I still love it, and I've been watching um, since we did this. I've been going through and watching uh, TikToks of people discussing the film, but also like recreating the dances, uh, oh, and yeah. so that's been especially fun. Yeah, you sent me one that was really good. We'll have to have to post it in the show notes. Yeah, sounds good. So, all right, uh, let's talk about our first scene here. 
Yeah, so the first thing that we mentioned here, uh, and I think it's uh, kind of obvious that two of the scenes we would pull out are the um, are the two power line sequences, but this first one, uh, the standout scene where, uh, you know, Max is on his way to the school and uh, there's a whole musical number that it does there. Um, and I do have to just give a quick shout out uh, to my friend Daisy, who when I uh, talked to her uh, and just mentioned that we were doing a Goofy movie, she broke into song in the first musical number, um, like the the After Today number, um, mm-hmm. and like literally like doing the song, performing the parts, just all of this. Um, <laughs> so I was like, okay, so obviously you're a fan. Um, but then they get to the school, and he is trying to impress Roxanne. And so they're at this school assembly where Principal Mazer is talking to them about how important it is for them to continue their education over the summer. Everybody's falling asleep. The lights go off, and then Max pops out doing this power line number in front of the entire school. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cool. The I know it's not what you specifically talked about, but I did... It's me, so this is something that I noticed and was really tickled by, the double meaning for after today. Because all of the kids are singing about how it's going to be summer vacation, but Max is clearly singing about something else, which, as the audience, we don't know what it is yet. And I, I thought that was really fun to sort of track that and then we get the reveal of what it is in in this sequence in the, this power line sequence yes and uh and just the you know when i was watching it i was thinking of um they have all that audio visual equipment and it's all so 90s <laughs> yeah uh, everything that's there and you know like the video camera they've got and the like TV that's on the cart and all those wires everywhere setting everything up and the projectors and I don't know like it just felt it's such a nostalgia trip that's uh, I remember going like backstage in, in as I was going to high school in the late 90s and that's the equipment that you had around and I don't know it just it, that was a nostalgia trip there yeah and I think this it does it I, it's so interesting to view this film right after we have viewed toy story which was the same year and they both do the same bait and switch where they're telling you that the movie's going to be about one thing and then it's going to end up being about another thing so in this case we think it's going to be about Max and Roxanne and Max trying to get the girl and it still is like that is the through line of the movie I'd say that is probably still the Max's major dramatic question but in a similar way to how Toy Story hinges to becoming about Buzz and Woody getting back to to Andy then this movie is going to switch to becoming about a road trip max yeah max yeah. being able to get through his father so and um uh, in the interview i listened to with kevin lima he talked about that one of the things he's trying to do here was make uh, sort of like a john hughes film 
before a modern audience. Um, and, you know, but also doing this with, like, an animated film, which is a really clever idea. I don't know how familiar you are with John Hughes. No, I'm not at all. I was going to ask um, you So, to John Hughes is, like, um, Breakfast Club, uh, 16 Candles, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which okay, clear, yeah. clear Ferris Bueller's Day Off uh, references uh, yeah. throughout this these opening few numbers. Um and so, you know, it's it's he was setting out to make that kind of film, and it, it that's what it feels like it's going to be, is this kind of, like, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off kind of um, story that it starts off with until it jerks and transitions into this, uh, into this road trip. Um, and then uh, the other thing I wanted to point out here is uh, I just find the... Uh, the lyrics of this song to be uh, really interesting. It gets to this this part here at the end where he talks about all I need is half a chance, a second thought, a second glance to prove I've got whatever it takes. It's a piece of cake, right? Um, but the the lyrics, the way that this works, is um, they're so authentic to the the when you look at the audience that really appreciates this now. These black millennials. This is one of the things they talk about is the way the music really spoke to them. And I think that's mm-hmm. a lot of what this is going for. Um, when he says, uh, I'm going to stand out above the crowd, even if I've got to shout out loud. Um, and I, th- I think that's that Tevin Campbell just brings so much to this performance. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it works really great. And the choreography is awesome for this sequence as well. Yeah. It's really good. When he flies over to the crowd and uh, reaches out to Roxanne's hand and is about to like touch her hand, and then the the lights turn off at the last second. Um, yeah, I was, I was like, "Ooh, it's Spider Man turn off the dark before there was ever Spider Man turn off the dark." <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but then the other thing I wanted to mention with this is immediately the fallout from this uh, this mm-hmm, event yeah. is Max goes in, he has to meet with the principal, and one of the things that I noticed, especially clearly this time is you have, oh, what is the name of the friend with the cheese whiz and whatnot? I can't remember his name. Uh, he's performed by Polly Shore. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it seems like that kid is particularly white-coated. Um, and he goes in and meets with the the principal, and he's just like, Mazer, what's up? You know, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and kind of seems to have this, he can't, seems to get off easy with the punishment. Uh, and then that Max is definitely goes in. the implication, yeah. And it's Bobby, by the way. Uh, yes, Bobby. Right, exactly. So, uh, and then Max goes in, and the reaction that the principal has is completely overblown. Um, he just it, the, it's com- a completely unhinged reaction. He says this thing where he says, you know, he calls Goofy uh, and tells him that his son uh, was dressed like a gang member. Uh, in and caught up the the school in a riotous frenzy uh, that he was destined for prison and would end up in the electric chair. Um, and I don't know, it's just to imagine that kind of call, phone call from a principal is just insane uh, for one thing. Yeah, and this was it's it's a weird moment for me because watching the film, it was so the first time it was so clearly like this is very 
bad what the principal is doing. Like, this is clearly an overreaction and clearly not treating this kid fairly. And we're going to watch Goofy descend into um, irrationality because of one thing that Pete said to him. And Mm -hmm. in retrospect, once you told me how the movie was black-coated and I read a couple articles on it, it's like, oh, how did I not see that? Like, it just lands so much more to hear if you imagine a white principal saying that about uh, a black kid. Yeah, exactly. And so it... And it makes sense a lot more why Goofy reacts the way that he does as well, because, um, you know, if... um, if you have this kind of response, white principal calls about a, a, a white kid, what's usually going to happen is the parents just going to kind of like, oh, okay, well, we'll talk to him and kind of blow it off a little bit. And there's not going to be serious consequences. Um, but if you are growing up in a, with a, with, in a different standpoint point with a different um, uh, lack of access to privilege, this can be a serious threat. Um, and that principle could absolutely ruin Max's life in a multitude of ways. Um, and so it makes sense that Goofy is worried about what's going to happen to him. Like, it's, we talk about the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, Goofy has a legitimate fear that his son could end up in prison because of the, these kinds of things that are going on. Yeah, well, and there's, <laughs> he could end up in prison just because Principal Mazur decides that's the path he's going to send him on. Yeah, exactly, like exactly. Could not necessarily be be up to our buddy Max. So it's just, uh, it's it sets out, you know, um, with that perspective in mind, it just changes the, the stakes of the movie in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. Um, and, uh, and it makes a lot more sense why it speaks to, it speaks to people the way that it does. So, yeah. And it gives, I like, and I'm still, I'm not letting Goofy off the hook here, but I did spend like the majority of the movie being pretty mad at him. Like, this is just, just some bad dadding, you know, not listening to his kid and yeah. And, you know, I think the movie is set up to that you're supposed to feel that way uh, in a lot of ways. You're supposed to identify with Max as the protagonist and, uh, you know, um, being seen things from his perspective to a point. So. Oh, I think so, too. I mean, the I think the idea is that Goofy is the antagonist. And it's just like the framing is is Max going to overcome his dad to be able to get to Roxanne? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes. Well, is Max going to be able to overcome his dad's smothering to get to Roxanne? And the answer is yes. But the way he does that is by him and his dad coming together and seeing eye to eye and... um, and in a lot of ways, just, you know, it's him taking on the good qualities of his dad as well. Um, and, you know, you have that nightmare at the beginning where he turns into his dad. Um, and that th- the through line that it has with the laugh 
uh, that he really doesn't want people to hear him laugh like his dad. Um, but then, you know, that's one of the things that Roxanne loves the most about him. And he mm-hmm. starts to accept that from himself. Um, and so, yeah, he, he has to learn to see eye to eye with his dad and even in some ways uh, become like his dad, the good qualities that his dad has. So, yeah. Yeah, let's, uh, we jumped a little ahead there, but let's move on to the next scene that I had outlined, which is this camping sequence. So, yeah. Goofy and Max are pitching their tent, and then all of a sudden, the Ride of the Valkyries plays, and in comes a giant RV that knocks Goofy down. Turns out it's Pete, and uh, what's Max's friend's name? PJ. PJ. Pete, Pete Jr. And so Pete he always Jr., calls him Pige, yes. Pige. And they, uh, Max gets to see his friend. His friend informs him that the entire school knows that he's going to be performing with, uh, Powerline. Powerline, yes, thank you. The, the, he, the, he's going to be performing with Powerline so that this is where Max learns oh no I actually have to go through with this <laughs> I will be <laughs> the laughing stock of the city but then there's also uh, what is really one of the most nefarious sequences of the movie where Pete who has been really imparting really bad bad dadding to yeah. To our boy Goofy here tells him that he's got to if he wants his son to respect him he's got to keep him under his thumb and then he throws the bowling ball does not get a strike and calls his son and makes his son go and knock it down and then tries to give him a high five and then pulls it away. It's really just like a confluence of giving horrible parenting advice and then being emotionally abusive to your son and then lying about your accomplishments and then being emotionally abusive to your son again. It's yeah, really remarkable. <laughs> Pete is just, he's just, uh, it's, and it's such a, um, a juxtaposition because Goofy really does love Max and wants mm-hmm. Max to love him um, and really cares about him. And Pete is so narcissistic in this uh, in this moment, and uh, you know I find it fascinating. Like like I said, his uh, PJ or Pete Junior, uh, but he goes by Pige. It's real clear that uh, Pete sees his son only as an extension of himself, mm-hmm. um, and then like Pige is trying to like navigate that uh, and trying to kind of form his own identity under the the thumb of this. Uh, clearly emotionally abusive dad. Yeah. the And what I really liked about this sequence as well, but actually all of the times that you see Pete, or I guess both of the times, it doesn't really happen so much in the picture-taking sequence at the beginning, but both here and then when they're going to run into them at the motel, you see Pete switch between the abusive menacing person and then the very charming guy that would make someone like goofy think that he is my friend and yeah 
that is essentially what we now call gaslighting, but is also mm-hmm. it. If you spend any time reading about narcissists, it's their most important quality because if a narcissist is not charming, then they are not. They they don't get to have victims. People will just avoid them, and so you right. you get to see them reeling them in and then slapping them, and it's uh, really quite nice. Yeah, and the the other thing along with those same lines is it's I think it's very clear at several points in this film that where this behavior stems from in Pete is a profound lack of self confidence and a profound mm-hmm. fear of um, being seen. Uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Just as inferior in any way. Um, yeah, they really set that up in that opening sequence where what sort of starts the ball rolling is people remarking how good Goofy is with kids. Yes. And exactly. Pete really gets jealous about that. Yes. And then he has that massive camper um, that's just... You know, I'd love to have that camper. Um, you, but you show up, and I mean, you've got you know, five star hotel wherever you wherever you plug in at. Um, but at the same time, okay, so this is uh, just a quick tangent. Mm-hmm. Goofy and Pete have the same job. How does Pete afford the camper? I did wonder about that. It was something that I thought about. I just, I don't know, but but then I think. Along those same lines, you have this moment later on when he shows at the hotel and he plugs the camper in at Goofy's and mooches off of Goofy's um, uh, Goofy's electricity and water and all of those things to set up his camper. Um, and so I, th- I think that's kind of the idea that we're getting here, that uh, Pete, you know, he's using all of this for show. He probably is, you know, um, cannot actually afford this thing and is just uh, using it to show off and all of those things. Um, but also a lot of the ways that he gets things is by taking advantage of people that have less than he does. Yeah. Um, there was a couple other moments from this scene, from this sequence that I just wanted to mention. One was I loved when Goofy looks in and sees PJ dancing and he just says so affectionately and so sincerely what a goob and like i think a lot of times you would see that sequence for teenage boys and you'd expect them to sort of rib each other for it which would be fine there wouldn't be anything bad about that but if the movie's about like being different and that being okay and that being good i think it was nice to see him just be like yeah my yeah. friend's ridiculous and it's awesome. Yeah, that's that's his dances and you know, and you know he does what he does and it's great. Yeah, and he's my bud. Yeah, I do um, like that scene. The I so I don't know. And then the other thing, I don't know if there were other moments in the movie that I missed where they did this, but it did strike me as strange that they used Ride of the Valkyries here. For the music when it felt like everything else except for I guess uh, the Yeti dancing to staying alive in 15 minutes or whatever yeah was, the Bee Gees. yeah so. was original so it, it did make me wonder if like they just ran out of time and ran out of themes <laughs> and 
<laughs> Possibly. Uh, I don't know. It's... Uh, I'm not sure. I, I think the Bee Gees one makes a lot of sense. And uh, that one doesn't stand out to me as the same way that Ride of the Valkyries does, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. Uh, it's just because it's also diegetic. Um, like, the the headphones come over the, the Bigfoot ears. For the ears. Yeti, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or and so Bigfoot, he... yeah, yeah. And so he starts hearing hearing the BG you know singing "Staying Alive." Um, that is who sings "Staying Alive," right? And, I believe yeah, so. Yeah, I think so. But in any case, uh, so that one's clearly diegetic. But the uh, the ride of the Valkyries is not, and maybe that's part of it too. Is so much of this, um, so much of the music, is like it's the only me- song that isn't coming from the characters. Uh, I think in the in. I don't know if that makes sense. The Bee Gees song? No, no, no. The Ride of the Valkyries. Um, it's the only one that's not actually coming out of the story. It's just like, uh, it's just in the background. But I don't think that you were supposed to think the Ride of the Valkyries is playing, like no, through the speakers so. of the of the of the like the other songs that are in there. Like Stand Out is Max singing it. Uh, the Open Road song is them making music from you know the sounds that are on the road. Um, yeah, but there's a lot of like un- other underscoring. That's true. There the is. Movie. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It just stands out to me because it feels more like not like an underscore, but as like I don't know, an actual song. I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. So yeah, uh, you know I what mean, I bet happened though. Um, mm-hmm. Now I think about it, I bet that it that was on the temp track and they fell in love with it. Maybe. Yeah. So. Or they had something that just wasn't working. Or yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. Uh, great. Do you want to say anything else about this scene? Uh, no, just that I, I I love the Bigfoot sequence, even though it feels very different from uh, from the things that are kind of around it, uh, which comes up immediately after this. But I, I don't know. Yo, I just got that Bigfoot that. not being able to break glass was <laughs> very strange. <laughs> he was an um, an idiosyncratic uh, Bigfoot for sure. So yeah. Uh, but yeah, I love that scene, and I don't know the high dad soup and all that stuff. But yeah, uh, let's nice. move on though. The high dad soup was one of that was probably when I was the most worried because I thought mm. I was so scared they were going to make the movie about how you have to love your dad. Ah, um, uh, yeah, I see. Yeah, r- rather than that, that the issue was gonna be max's when uh it was goofy so yeah that brings us to our next scene which um this is when the car is destroyed so they have their big blow-up fight and goofy uh forces max to make a decision max makes a decision it's the lying decision where he tells him to go left and then goofy gets out of the car max gets out of the car and apologizes or starts to apologize i think and then the car starts rolling away. And you have this really great action sequence where they're chasing the car and then they are trying to get back in the car. And then the car rides the guardrail and yeah. then it bounces off a few, um, what do you call them? I don't know, rock formations <laughs> yes. before it starts floating down the river as uh, all cars definitely do. You know, they have a well-built car. That's all I can say with that. So, 
Hmm. You, yeah. you know, those, yeah. those those kind of cars, you get them, and, you know, they just, you know, they don't make cars the way they used to. I suppose that's true, yeah. Every <laughs> car after 1995 will not float you down the river. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um. So, yeah, and then they eventually rekindle and they really come together um max apologizes to his dad for not finding him cool and the at the moment of blow up the i wrote it down max says i have my own life and then goofy says Mm -hmm. i know that i just wanted to be a part of it that part part makes me cry every time Uh, i've got chills when you said it just now it's a great it's a great sequence and i think what struck me when i watched it is i feel like like i realized that was what goofy was thinking but in that moment i think everyone kind of realizes it's a lie it's not true he didn't want to be part of max's life he didn't want to be a part of it as what max's life was now he wanted to be shaping what max's life was and like and he realizes he has to change and he can't make max like the things that he likes he has Mm -hmm. to take him to break into a concert and what I assume is completely legal and ethical way so they can dance on stage and his son can uh, go on a date with the girl that he loves. And what I love about Goofy's response here is, like, the biggest issue they've had here is a lack of communication, uh, that Mm -hmm. Max has not really communicated things and Goofy has not really let him communicate them. Max hasn't felt comfortable to do it. it. It makes sense to me that they haven't. But Max explains the whole situation, and Goofy's immediate re- immediate response is, well, I guess we'll have to break into the concert and get you on stage. That's the only solution here. What else yeah. are we going to do? I'm not, I'm not going to let my boy, you know, have made a promise to this girl and not go through with it. It only makes sense. What else, what else is the solution? What else are you going to do? I, w- I will say I put a little bit more on Goofy for not listening because... Like, Goofy drove him to Roxanne's house, mm-hmm. and he, like, he watched this whole thing happen. You didn't think to say, hey, what's that yes. about? Or think, like, exactly. oh, maybe I'm mucking something up here by making my son leave without giving him any advance notice. Yeah, and and also that scene where they're fighting about getting in the car. Uh, Max kind of starts to try to attempt to tell him and Goofy just uh, refuses to listen. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I put the majority of the blame on Goofy for this. But at the same time, uh, Max... Part of it is that Max just doesn't feel comfortable doing it and doesn't quite trust his dad to to listen to him. And part of that is because Goofy hasn't earned, earned it, and part of it is that Max, you know, hasn't really given his dad a chance. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I agree with you that the responsibility is a little bit more on Goofy's shoulders there. Uh, but there is some amount of give that Max has to give as well. Of course, of course, yeah. Um, and I want to jump forward really quickly to the end of the movie, and then we'll talk about your last scene. But I think one of the things that is so 
interesting here is the I wasn't a hundred percent sure how they were gonna figure it out, but your protagonist is supposed to be the one who makes the sacrifice and yeah. Max never and learns the lesson and Max never does. So instead, here you have the antagonist, Goofy, moving over towards Max's world where he's the one who makes the sacrifice and he's the one who learns the lesson. And I was thinking through this whole sequence and through the Powerline concert, like, oh man, this is really just not... This is a very satisfying journey for Goofy, but it's not a very satisfying journey for Max. But then they did something that I did not see coming, which I was very impressed with. They make Max go and tell Roxanne the truth and say, hey, I lied and I'm sorry I did it and it was wrong. And I... I didn't, I wasn't expecting that from, I wasn't expecting the 90s, mid-90s movie to have that relationship with a lie. I was expecting it not to come back up again. And so I I really mm-hmm. liked that that was how they cap-ended, cap-ended, is that a word? Book-ended. Book-ended, yeah. Yeah, book-ended Max's journey and gave him the lesson. And also... Uh, if the movie was going to end up secretly being about a father-son relationship, it's the the lesson came from Goofy as well. Yes, exactly. I uh, yeah, I agree with you. And it's a, I mean, I know the Powerline concert is you know the climax of this movie uh, when they break into it, but for me, the moment of highest tension that feels mm-hmm. like everything could easily fall into da- disaster the most is when he goes to tell the truth to to Roxanne. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though they're not in physical danger at that point, he's just going to go, and Roxanne seems like a very nice, wonderful, charming girl that's, you know, even if she's going to tell him he was wrong, is going to still let him down in a gentle way. I don't know Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Like, I think, I don't think that Max is in any real danger here, but it does feel like he's about to have his heart broken. Um... And you're just like, well, it's over. He's confessing, you know, he's confessing what happened to her. And, you know, I, I love her response, too. She really um, takes it with the sense of agency that I don't know that um, that uh, that women characters always get treated with. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. So. It's, um, uh, it, it seems like she got the best, close to the best treatment you can give your, uh, your women who definitely don't pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and her on so. screen for whatever ten minutes. For yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, yes, agreed, agreed. Um, All right, let's talk about your last scene, unless you <coughs> wanted to say something else about those. I think yeah, that's all I've got about those. But then just this eye to eye sequence, I I just. I love this whole sequence so mu- so much, and I adore it. Um, and I this is one of the scenes that I'll go back and watch over and over and over again. Uh, and it's the scene that when you go and look at people's responses, like this is the dance that people recreate. Um, 
in mm-hmm. you know on TikTok and all of these kinds of things. It's where you get to see Powerline really shine. Um, and so what happens is they decide they're going to go to Los Angeles, um, sneak Max onto the Powerline stage. They hide in the cases of the instruments, uh, get backstage, and then you know uh, they kind of get separated. Um, Max ends up on stage, or Goofy ends up falling through the rafters to land on stage, uh, and then Max kind of falls down as they're being chased by security guards. Uh, but one of the things that I love here is it's going to tie back to that uh, scene with the river, actually, for just a moment. But mm-hmm. uh, where Goofy lands on the stage and Max shouts to him, "Do the perfect cast," um, and so going back to the quick rewind back to the river um that moment where they go over the waterfall and uh and goofy is falling and max realizes the only way to save his dad is to do the perfect cast um such a magical moment where he remembers it throws it and goofy comes up and says the perfect cast um (laughs) and then it calls back again when they're on stage and he uses the exact same thing and tells him he can do that to match the dance moves and immediately you see powerline sees this it's like actually those are good moves and starts mimicking this puts it into his own routine on the stage and max is right along with it uh i don't know i just love this this sequence so much yeah it's like uh all of a sudden it's hairspray yeah exactly right so um and the it, it and the lyrics of the song just tie in with all of what you're trying to get from Goofy that they need to see each other eye to eye this entire time. Um, yeah. That you have this uh, in a lot of ways it's a dual protagonist kind of ro- role I think um, you, that you're kind of realizing here and that the goal was for them both to reach this journey where they could uh, understand each other. Um, and I don't know I just love the energy of that scene. Yeah, I think it's. It's great, as I said the at the top of the show, the choreography and the animation for it is just, I, I think it's the best animation they had for the whole movie. It's really exciting, and it has, like, the strobe light sequence, and there's the moment at the end where Roxanne and her friends start dancing. Like, yeah. I, I said sort of glibly that it, becomes hairspray but it really just feels like it has the i guess i don't know the john waters the original movie as well as i know the musical uh but the musical is just like a rush of adrenaline at the end and that's kind of how this felt Um, does and that moment where everybody sees max on tv uh as well yeah, I know him. Um, and that moment where Pete spits out his beer like onto the TV <laughs> and it's like going down. Uh, I just love just like it's in his face so much. Um, and get wrecked, Pete. Yeah, just like everybody saw Max and he accomplished exactly the goal he was going for. Um, and then he has to go still apologize to Roxanne. But uh, it's just I don't know. It's a, a I love the ending of this film and I think it all comes together really well. So yeah. Absolutely. Do you have anything else you want to say about that final scene? I don't. I don't. I just love it. Okay. I have, I don't want to bum you out, but I had a few things that squicked me out that I feel like I definitely have to mention. Um, Go for it. I, uh, I probably, uh, it's probably the same things for me, actually. Probably. So the first yeah. one was, I do not like this trope of, 
Roxanne's dad that is played mm-hmm. for, is very different from Pete's trope where there's clearly a point of view that like this is bad whereas Roxanne's dad is played for comedy the ha yeah. ha ha overbearing I'm not letting my my baby girl go near any men and it's just like yeah not a fan of that um, not a fan of it the other thing that they do that's weird there like, okay, so they're in a universe where uh, all these characters are dogs, but also they're all humans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they don't act like dogs at any point. Um, and they're not like anthropomorphized uh, dogs. They're just like, they're people that look Squirrel. like dogs. Um, except for Roxanne's dad, who just acts like a bulldog here. Or, you know, like a guard dog or something. I don't know if that mm. makes sense. No, it does. So that that part's weird, and I don't know. It's it's definitely played for laughs, and it's always been one of those things in the film that I'm just like, eh, not a fan. So yeah, not a fan. I it makes a little more sense from 1995, but hey, we're we're watching these films now, so I'm gonna mention them. Yep, of course. Um, the other oh, Max hits the possum. Yeah, he's aggressive to him, isn't he? So Yeah. I'm, yeah. I don't know. He just, like, when he yells at him, beat it, doofus, like, hits him, and then the kids, like, jump on him, and they're, like, tearing the possum apart. Yeah, I was um, like, whoa. Yeah. Um, also, um, the that possum is, the voice of the possum is the director, I believe. Uh, yes, he's somewhere in that sequence. I didn't, I, I didn't look up which, which one he was. Well, maybe yeah. it was just a little bit of self-flagellation and, hey, if the kids learn it's okay to hit people dressed up as big animals. Yeah, the, that, that seems the not great. Um, I do think that it's not necessarily portraying that as being an okay behavior. Um, I think that we're supposed to see like that Max is going through a lot of toxic behavior here. Um, I definitely, yeah. If that makes sense. But, you know, at the same time, I think so. he's it's real just, aggressive. There's no, there's no consequence for it for him. It's just... Yeah. The, the guy in the mouse costume stuff. doesn't turn around and knock him flat or something. So... Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then my last two, and these are so strange to me. Because they just didn't have to do it. And it's just very weird. In the final sequence, Max is like, oh, I'm not going to do this. And then some sexy dancer later ladies walk by and yes. he gives them like the elevator eyes and is like, okay, I guess I'm in. Yeah, that was weird. And it's like, bud, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, uh, and, I don't, I don't and know. Then, and then in the same sequence, Goofy busts in on a woman and or a lady dog in her lady dog lingerie. And yeah. instead of saying sorry, gives her. I don't know puppy eyes you know yeah so i have uh, i have a theory on this one as well okay um yeah and I, I don't i don't think that stuff's great but um so there was another essay that i read that talked specifically about um about goofy um the the part where the 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 dancers pass by max i mean i think that's just a, a 90s thing i don't have like any like explanation of that, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's just mm-hmm. that's just weird, and you're like, okay. Uh, but the other one, um, one of the things that you look at through the history of Goofy as a character um, is it is a fraught history, um, and um, 
I read this really this this long form essay that was really good that talks about the way that Goofy has been black coated for a long time, not just in uh, this film, but um, he starts out as kind of like this um, hayseed kind of character, um, like right off of a plantation, the kind of original form of Goofy, and then kind of goes through these uh, changes and developments over time. But there's a lot of this. Uh, portrayal of goofy as this kind of um this um oh it's like an asexual um kind of a presentation of a, a black stereotype i don't know if that makes sense mm. sort of like the um what's that trope called the um like the the maid that will often show up in yeah uh, in films i can't remember the name of it all of a sudden my mind's just blinking um, like I, in Gone with the Wind, right? Yeah, which Goofy sort of does at the beginning of this film. Yeah, and so I think that when he when he arrives and opens the door, I think that's a little bit of what's being presented here as this kind of tension um, with Goofy as a character and kind of the... I don't know, I don't... It doesn't seem like their intent, like the director or the the animators here are necessarily intending that, but that it's been coded into Goofy's character for so long mm. that Go that the character kind of reacts this way. Um, that I I think is kind of representing like Goofy is so awkward and nervous in that situation in a really kind of embarrassed, like he doesn't understand exactly the situation kind of way. If that makes sense, yeah, and it's so fast. I think. Uh, you know, it, it's something that's easy to forget about and easy to gloss over anyway. So yes, but but I do think that part is uh, is a little bit problematic, and uh, you know there there are problematic ways, um, things that happen with this, even with the uh, the way that it's um, it's clearly black coded, but um, it's there's also things that uh, it's also clearly made by. Um, um, predominantly white people. white people. Yes, uh, I, I don't want to say all white and people. A nineteen-year-old Tevin Campbell. Well, there's nineteen-year-old Tevin Campbell, but there's also one of the lead animators that does a lot of the character design. Um, mm. Is is black, and he uh, so a lot of that character design that's going in is coming from him. Uh, and he goes, I can't remember his name exactly, but he goes on to work on a lot of other Disney films later on. So, uh, so I don't want to say all black people. There's a lot of black folks that have a lot of influence in this film, um, but uh, obviously a lot of white people involved. So I think that uh, contributes to that scene with Goofy, um, and probably even a little bit, honestly, to that scene with Max, where he's seen the dancers, because the dancers and Tevin Campbell are also like even more black-coated than uh, the other characters, including to the point where they have uh, darker skin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, right. I think I think that's where some of this is coming from. I think that's a goofy movie. Do you have anything you want to wrap up with before we move into closing? Um, nothing else to wrap up with this. I just, uh, again, this is a film that I really love. I really encourage people to go and check this one out. There's uh, a lot of this that just, you know, really speaks to uh, people of our generation in particular. Um, and I think that people will really enjoy it if they've never seen it before. And I suspect that out of the ones we've discussed so far, uh, this is probably the one that the fewest people have seen, but I think that a lot of people will really like it. Yeah, and I guess the only thing I'll say in closing is the 
I'm a firm believer, I think you're a firm believer as well, that critique has an ability to bring a heightened enjoyment and a heightened um, appreciation for certain movies and certain works of art. And I think that certainly happened for me for this film. I think preparing for the podcast and talking to you about it and reading about it helped me enjoy the film in a way that I would not have if I had just watched it and then gone on with my life. So I'm that was that was one of the reasons we wanted to start the podcast. And, you know, if it's just uh, you and me getting a better appreciation for stuff as we're talking to each other, then that's great. And we'll keep doing it until uh, we get sick of it or our uh, computers die. But hopefully if people stuck around this long, hopefully we were able to impart some of that to other people as well. I agree. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I also enjoyed this film more, um, and it's. I just engaged with it on so much deeper of a level this time. Um, you know, with researching about all these stories and seeing so many things where other people have reacted in ways that are similar, but in some ways that are different from my own reaction. I really that really just thrilled me um, with this watch through of the film. Yeah. So if you do want to let us know what you thought, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at... O-R-A-Y-M-W. Yeah, and this is the first podcast that we are recording since I set up the email address. Uh, All of the previous shows have it in the show notes but i don't mention it because we hadn't released them and i hadn't made it yet so if you want to email us we are at podcast stream it just those three words no spaces no underscores no nothing podcast stream it at gmail.com and yeah tell us whatever you want tell us what you liked tell us what you didn't like tell us stuff you thought we missed we will uh in between season one and season two if we get feedback or questions or anything we will probably plan to do a mailbag episode just so that we have a chance to respond since we're doing the episodes asynchronously we're releasing them on a delay so that it works for our schedule so yeah hit us up and let us know what you thought and then Next week we will uh, we're doing a double exploration. So we're for the first time we're doing a movie that neither one of us have seen, and then also uh, we're doing a documentary. So we will see how that goes. And we're watching Free Solo from 2018. I'm very excited about this one. I'm a little bit nervous because I have no idea uh, if we're even going to like it. So yeah, it's yeah, just yeah, out yeah. there. We'll, We'll find out, but this was, uh, we found this one, whatever, I, I'll say it next week. We don't need to keep going for, for now. Right. Um, do you, who wants to go first for our closing question? Uh, I can go first with my question. Um, okay. So a lot of this film, the, the, the montage travel scene in the center is traveling across America and visiting all these like different Americana sites on their road mm. trips. Yeah. So my question was, is there like a... Um, uh, something that you remember from a road trip or going and visiting that's like an Arca- uh, an Americana uh, thing that stands out to you like what would be your Lester's Possum Park 
if that uh, makes sense. The oh, goofy love so much, right? Yeah. That's funny because that's my question, but the answer, the, the phraseology is a little different, or the point of the question is a little different. Oh, um, I love so it. That's I, great. I did this with my dad. We did uh, two road trips, both before my junior year of college from Seattle to Miami, and then one back after I graduated from Miami to Seattle, and we went to baseball games the entire way. And I guess I would say probably the the best stadium we went to was Petco Park in San Diego. That was just absolutely glorious. Um, we had the best time. The food was great. The location was great. The weather was great. We had a great time walking around. But the thing that probably felt the most like the possum theme park was we went to a minor league game god it must have been like 11 or 12 in the morning in texas and it was a hundred plus degrees it was so hot (laughs) and it was just uh i mean we were watching baseball and we were together so it was hard to be too upset but it was also like when that game was over uh, we were ready to be back in the air-conditioned car. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, what about you? Yeah, for me, the, so near where I live uh, here in Las Vegas, there is a national park. It's called um, it's called the Valley of Fire. Um, and this national park is so closely like tied into my life and like so many events that have happened in my life because we would go on field trips there all the time and my parents would take us out there my my dad is a very outdoorsy kind of person uh so we would go and do hikes over at valley of fire um it is uh you know um i've taken my kids there um just all kinds of different experiences that i've had many times over my life um and you know some of the experiences with it there's a lot of things that are beautiful and great and wonderful and sometimes you're there and you go to have lunch and you know you the lunch table is over an entire pile of ants and they get over your entire body as you're trying mm-hmm. to eat and Ugh. these are the you know it's just i've had all both ranges of experiences at this place um and it's a lot of fond memories and a lot of you know uh, memories that remind me of Max uh, and his <laughs> trauma in this horror show at Lester's Possum Park. So that's funny. Okay, so my question for you, I wrote it down. It literally says, "What is your Opossum Park?" But yeah. <laughs> what I what I meant was, the Opossum Park is something that Goofy loves, and he loved uh, with his dad, and he wants to share it with his son. And his son just hates it. So I want to know what's the thing that you love that your kids are just not into. <laughs> what I love that my kids are just not into. Um, yeah, just like, ah, oh, dad. Yeah. Um, whew, this one's a tricky one. Um, there's a lot of them, actually. Um, you know... The kinds of video games that I like to play mm. are nothing like the kinds of video games my kids like to play. And, you know, I thought as I was getting older, this is one of the things that I thought I was like, I'm going to be the cool dad that likes video games, and my kids <laughs> are going to like video games, and we'll play them together. And 
what I was not anticipating is we that we would like dramatically different kinds of video games. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's just a, like I cannot get them to play video games with me because they don't want to play the games that I play. They want to play like Minecraft and Terraria and these kinds of things. And I'm like, well, you know, we've got like. Uh, I don't know, like a like a like Call of Duty or Halo or you know those kind of things that that I played when I was a kid, and they're not into that kind of stuff. And so, ah, I don't know, they're not into it. It's oh, disappointing, funny. but it's fine. So, uh, it's I I can't really answer this one. We don't we 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 have not yet procreated. We don't yet have children. Uh, but I I think my biggest fear for thing for what my kids might not like is like musical theater yeah what i work on work in it's what i grew up loving and it's pretty easy to see you know yeah that's yeah i mean and cheesy and it's something that takes a lot of work to really get into um and so if they're not into it it's it's easy to see how they just would avoid it so it makes sense yeah who knows? It's, you know, like Goofy learns in this one, you can't force your kids to be like you. You gotta, you gotta let them be their own kids. Um, yeah. But we also saw the lesson where at one point Max does learn that he's got to take his dad to see the giant ball of string. So you know that's true. Yeah, he does learn to appreciate some of the things his dad likes still. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, sorry we we ran a little long. We are trying to keep these episodes down, but uh, you know sometimes we get into it and we get excited. So if if there are places you think we're running long, do do drop us a line. Or also, if the length is fine for you and you're like, you know, I just like listening to you guys, uh, let us know that too, because that will inform future shows and future decisions. So for sure, yes. Uh, Uh, Great. So we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Sounds good. Bye.